Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Guest for this FA Cup special is author Matt Eastley. His trilogy of books, When the FA Cup Really Mattered, from Pitch Publishing, covers the competition from the 1960 Wolves v Blackburn final to the tragic 89 final played out in the long shadow of Hillsborough. And the story of the finals is told through the fans who were there. The books cover that 30-year period where the FA Cup was firmly established as the greatest cup competition the game has ever known. And any younger listeners, understandably, given what the cup has become since the 90s, might find that odd. But the FA Cup, until at least 1990 in this country, I would argue was bigger than the Champions League is now, even when, like this year, it's an all-English European final. Club football has never seen anything like the FA Cup at its peak. Curiously, it overshadowed even winning the league. It was that big. This is coming out on the Friday, the eve of the final. And I'll be honest with you, there's every chance that during tomorrow's final, I'm going to be having a catnap. I'm not a great sleeper. I'm prone to the catnap at the weekends. I do try to avoid them because sleeping during the day always leaves me in something of a stupor. But I am vulnerable to the catnap, especially on a Saturday. And if I wake up having missed this year's final or a chunk of it, I won't be troubled by it. It's a sad thing to say about an annual game which for me as a kid, like pretty much everyone else of my generation and older, was the most important day of the annual football calendar. Looking back at some of these finals with Matt, we covered some funny stories from the finals, we covered some poignant ones, and had a think too about where the magic of the FA Cup was lost. Here's Matt Easley. Tell us why the FA Cup no longer really matters. I could give you one word answer, Daniel, and that would be money. It's more complex than that, of course, but I think money is the, is the kind of overriding factor. Money kind of overcome romance, if you like. The Cup was all about romance in the, uh, in the, in, before the 90s. It still gets trotted out in the media, the magic of the Cup and all that stuff, and I'm not denying that in the lower rounds there are great moments, fantastic moments, but I don't think we'll ever replicate the 
the sheer magnitude of the competition in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I think there's a number of factors, Daniel, um, Sky TV being one of them. FA Cup final particularly was the only show in town for years. It was the one live moment of football, home international matches aside. But the FA Cup final was a live experience. And everybody, it transcended football. It's one of those moments, perhaps like a, a royal wedding or one of those things that everybody kind of watches in some ways. And I think I wrote, it, wrote in the book that uh, my granddad used to wear a suit on FA Cup final day. Yes. Because it was special. It was a special day in the national calendar. I mean, now it is literally just another game. And obviously clubs became less committed to it. The bigger clubs became less committed to the competition. I mean, there's so many examples, really, Daniel. Um, I think money is the overriding factor, though. I was flicking through an old Sabucho catalogue yesterday, just going off on a tangent here, and it just... I knew I had this interview coming up this morning. We're going to be talking about the FA Cup. And I was aware of the FA Cup long before I was aware of what the league championship was. And it, it struck me, looking through this old Sabucho catalogue, they never actually had a league championship trophy. They had the FA Cup, the League Cup, the World Cup, every other trophy, not the league championship. And just reading your books reinforces that. The FA Cup really was the biggest competition in the country and bigger than the Champions League is now, at least within this country. It was just a huge event, a huge annual event. I would go further than that, Daniel. So it was the biggest competition in the world. I think the, the English FA Cup was the biggest club competition in the world. It was absolutely huge. It's evidenced by the, the attendances at, uh, right from the third round. Huge packed grounds, uh, gates locked. Midweek replays would attract tens of thousands of fans. These days, a midweek replay, I'm not even sure they have replays anymore. I mean, my kind of knowledge of the cup has fallen off a cliff face, I have to admit, but absolutely packed to the rafters as i say it transcended society it drew in families it drew in people with no interest in football you're absolutely right it was a huge competition and the kind of the the fa cup final was the showpiece it was like the icing on the cake of the whole season i think the, the championship was important don't get me wrong but it was kind of seen as very much as the bread and butter it was seen as the kind of the grind of a footballer's life. And I think Bill Shank is on record as saying it, the league championship is our bread and butter and he wanted to win it. But the FA Cup, and I remember, if you remember that old um, focus in shoot, um, focus on, where they used to sort of look at uh, football players and who would you most like to meet? It was nearly always the Queen at Wembley. It was either Muhammad Ali or the Queen at Wembley yeah. uh, in the FA Cup final. Every player wanted to get there. Every player bar none wanted to appear at Wembley. And the television coverage was really good in those days. People say it was overhyped. But of course, then in the 90s, you get the sort of, you get the satellite television coming on when back in the 70s and 80s, you might get two or three live games a season. Come the 90s and 2000s, you're getting two and three live games a week, you know, and you're getting hype for what, with no disrespect to any of the clubs involved, are pretty low key affairs, a lot of them, you know, getting the equal hype to the FA Cup final. And, of course, the riches on offer in the Premier League and then the Champions League diminish the interest in the Cup. So then you start to see players, clubs resting players in the FA Cup. And accordingly, you know, it, it just, it, the gradual decline. And really, that's what motivated me to write the book because I had so many fabulous memories of a boy just indulging in the FA Cup experience and loving it from the third round. Well, not even the third round, from the first round, you know. 
But um, those great giant killing acts of kind of Hereford United and, and Ronnie Radford on that quagmire of a pitch in 72 and, you know, Wimbledon going to Leeds and Dickie Guy saving that. And, you know, the FA Cup was where the stories were in my in my mind. And I, and I just love the competition. And I'm genuinely sad at its decline for what I see as kind of material reasons. Was it always the intention to split the books into three volumes? Uh, not really, Daniel. I mean, it was. Um, I, I initially wanted to do something post-war, but I, but I, I, I was very much. I'm very interested in social history, so I really wanted to. I knew all the stats. I knew all the stats. I mean, I'm not. I'm not bragging here. And there's there'll be tens of thousands of people like me around the country who know all the all the FA Cup results, all the scorers, perhaps all the teams, even the referees. I wanted to know the stories behind those occasions. I wanted to speak to Wolves fans who were at the 1960 FA Cup final. I wanted to speak to West Brom fans who were at 68 and the losing teams. I wanted to speak to Brighton fans in 83 or Sunderland fans from 73. I wanted to know what they were doing. I, I was probably a pain because I wanted to know all the minor details. What were you wearing? Can you remember what was in the charts? What were you doing? Where were you in life at the time? And it was done for the right reasons because it was social history. I wanted the social history. I wanted to understand that huge impact on the competition and the way it impacted on, on people's lives. And the stories came flooding out in a, in a most amazing way. And I was privileged some of the stories that people shared with me. So Matt, we've got three volumes and let's look at how you would distinguish between the three decades you cover in your trilogy. How different were the finals from decade to decade in terms of how the media maybe covered the game, the types of fans we saw following their clubs, the football itself and the cup's importance to people because we look back say at the 53 Matthews final you know which we would have grown up with watching that every now and then um, on a pathy newsreel snippet and so the FA Cup was always huge but I guess the coverage from the 60s onwards maybe just elevated it yeah, I think in the 60s, we really see the arrival of kind of television as the kind of main media for sort of uh, uh, for covering the FA Cup finals. You say it was a Pathé News was always the kind of uh, was the standard way of covering it in the 50s. And it, they were televised, these games. But in the 60s, we see we see more innovation. It's where we see the importance of kind of post-match interviews, pre-match interviews and stories emanating from the FA Cup. We see the demand for tickets really escalating in the 60s, a real cementing of the competition as the glamour competition that teams really want to win. The double was hugely important. And the double is still important, but the double was seen very much as the holy grail of kind of football in those days, the league championship and the FA Cup. Everybody wanted to really win that. Of course, we also see the, 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 the movement of fans more in the 60s, more fans going to away games, the interest of kind of younger fans. There's, there's some quite complex socioeconomic reasons why I think uh, the, the kind of the, 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 the composition of fans change. We see the passion and television captured, of course, the great moments, you know, the great Eddie Kavanagh, the, the Everton fan who did the kind of dance of joy across the... Uh, the turf in 66, you know, chased by policemen, which somehow kind of epitomised the changing society of kind of people against the establishment, the, the joyous, liberated 60s, perhaps encapsulated in one kind of joyous run across the Wembley pitch. And of course, it was a fantastic final when Everton beat Sheffield Wednesday 3-2 with Mike Trebleco really, you know, starring. So there's some great games 
There were some great games. The 70s, of course, we get the kind of arrival of uh, kind of colour television. And this is really where we see the likes of kind of Grandstand and on BBC and World of Sport sort of dedicating special cup final programmes. We perhaps see the increase in cup final merchandise, special kind of publications around it, special FA Cup products, FA Cup songs, for instance. You know, we see that with the arrival of those, it became de rigueur to have a kind of FA Cup final song. And of course, fantastic moments in the 70s of Sunderland's incredible, well, started with the classic 70 Chelsea Leeds, which was just a, a, a fantastic kind of two-legged affair, brilliant, playing on that kind of uh, uh, cow patch of a of, of a pitch at Wembley in, in the first effort and then kind of the, the whole show moving up to, to uh, Old Trafford for the replay. Fantastic, great kind of two-legged affair. You know, Sunderland's win over Leeds doesn't need any introduction. That really kind of helped propel the FA Cup even further, as did Southampton beating Manchester United in, in, in 76. And then even games like kind of... Uh, Bobby Robson's Ipswich beating Arsenal in 1-0. So there all these kind of, it starts really kind of conjuring up great stories. It always had, but I think it became more apparent and the media kind of latched onto it and the fans just loved it and players loved it. And I think 80s was probably the last great decade, as you say, but that, of course, we've got some great finals as well, like Coventry in 87, the Ricky V goal in the replay in 81, the fantastic 83 match between Brighton and uh, United with Brighton should have won it in the last minute, but didn't. And then, of course, it all ends with tragedy at uh, Hillsborough in 89, which is, uh, you know, an absolute, you know, shocking moment. But I think, Daniel, we also saw the signs were there. Um, I think I, 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 I point out a couple of kind of chilling pointers towards Hillsborough in the book you know, of overcrowding tickets being getting into wrong hands and stuff. This has nothing to do with heels, but by the way, it's, it was the fact of overcrowding and mismanagement of, of, of the way the movement of fans was starting to kind of rear its head. So the FA Cup final thing is a microcosm of the way football went. We'll come to a few of those points that you've mentioned there later in the interview, the overcrowding, the situation with tickets. First of all, how did you go about finding all these fans because i think you spoke to something like 700 people didn't you for I these did. three books i put in the hard yards there is no easy way of doing this to make this a credible social history i have to speak to people who went to the games and i didn't want to speak to players or managers because that's all been done before and quite often i think you get quite disappointing results when you speak to players oh yeah it was a great game i scored you know then it went out we went out on the beer kind of thing i'm not you know i'm not that's 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 a cliche that's that's lazy stereotype but the fans were i very much saw the fa cup final and the fa cup per se as a competition for the people without sounding too cliche so i wanted to speak to those people i wanted to speak to people about their experiences about how they got tickets about what they were doing in their lives in terms of how did i reach them a myriad of ways the internet is a powerful tool when used correctly. People are out there. You have to supporters clubs, forums, programs, local newspapers, every available outlet where fans would be gathering. I put myself on. Then, of course, you have to identify the stories. You have to identify the people with good stories to tell. You have to handle their stories respectfully and professionally. I tried to make every person as special as I could because these were unique memories. And what was great was that these stories started coming through about family connections. There were some great kind of stories. They showed, showed me the FA Cup was an important factor in people's lives when it come to, came to their relationships with parents, 
siblings, friends, you know, all these things were coming through in the FA Cup. The FA Cup final was a moment in time that in some ways cemented these special relationships with people that are important to them. And that was something you don't get if you just with just kind of dry figures in books. You know, the fact that Tottenham beat Chelsea 2-1 in 67, just it's just a fact. There's a whole myriad of social stories and people's stories behind that fact. And that was what I wanted to draw out. And that was, I guess, the consistent theme that uh, that I had throughout. And just uh, you've just reminded me that I think it's the 64 final. Is it 64 West Ham? Was that West Ham Preston? West Ham you, Preston, yep. You speak to one West Ham fan whose granddad had been at the first Wembley yes. final in 23. And I'm looking at things now. We're in 2021. In two years' time, it's the centenary of that 1923 White Horse final. So you've got maybe three or four generations of West Ham fans now who go back 100 years. You know, these clubs have been around now 120, 150 years. And it's remarkable that you can trace that that line within a family now back to, you know, supporting clubs from the late 19th century or early 20th century. It is quite a remarkable thing. Yeah, it's special, isn't it? It's really special that uh, we we get that and those and those strands of, you know, they they were coming through the whole time. I think they might have, they, something goes back to nineteen oh five. I can't quite recall what it was, but you know, the Wolves fans at the nineteen sixty final, you know, were talking were still old enough to remember the nineteen forty nine Cup final, which uh, Wolves won. United fans remember the kind of fifties, you know, the great finals of the fifties, and of course Newcastle fans. One of my favourite chapters was the 1974 um, FA Cup final, which I don't know if you remember, but... Uh, yes, um, that, that young guy, I've, I've got him somewhere here. We might as well talk about him now. He's a very, if I remember rightly, he couldn't deal with excitement. Yeah, <laughs> just... yeah that was absolutely one of my favourite uh, chapters. And I, and I decided to write the 74 final through the eyes of Newcastle fans, actually. It was a fantastic performance by Liverpool that day, 3-0. We've just got a coloured television, actually, in my... Um, in my family. And uh, I remember that clearly for that reason, but uh, Malcolm McDonald had been quite kind of uh, vociferous in the press in the, in the weeks leading up to the game about he was going to do this and do that. And um, of course he had a terrible game on the day and Newcastle didn't turn up, but the passion displayed by those kind of Newcastle fans and this particular Newcastle fan, as you say, who as a child, every time something special in his life happened, he'd get ill, you know, whether it was birthdays, whether it was kind of holidays. And of course the FA Cup final for a young football mad lad was the ultimate. So he kind of took to his bed. He just couldn't handle it. And it was these kind of little stories that, that came out the whole time. And again, how the kind of Newcastle fans reacted to that defeat, the hands of Liverpool was, uh, was very instructive about football. Of course, of Salt added in their wounds because Sunderland, their great rivals, had won the um, the FA Cup the year before. So Newcastle desperately wanted to win that. They'd had a fantastic win over Burnley in the semi-final at Hillsborough, which Newcastle fans of a certain generation still talk about. So I wanted to capture the not just the joy of FA Cup final experience, but the angst and disappointment. And it, again, it's symptomatic of the life of a football fan. You get to Wembley and it's great, but if you lose, it's terrible. And almost nearly all the stories in the book are predominantly about winners, but um, there's losers as well. And they have great stories to tell. And, uh, you know, stories, there's great, you know, there's a theme of alcohol running through the books, you know, great kind of drinking sessions around the FA Cup final. It's all kind of good stuff, all good humoured stuff. I remember the Manchester City fans from 1969, you know, great stories emanating from there and that, that win over Leicester. And of course, Leicester, who are obviously in this year's FA Cup final, they're three FA Cup defeats in the 60s. 
all very well articulated by Leicester City fans. The uh, 61, 63 and 69 games in which they lost, you know. And of course, but then of course, the Leicester fans I spoke to had joy when they won the Premier League in 2016. So I don't feel that sorry for them. One of the things that also stood out from that Newcastle fan story in 74, and I thought, what? okay, what's happening here? Is Matt going to, is there some big reveal here from Matt? Because the fan tells you that he noticed that everybody was talking to his dad that day, complete strangers. So I was almost certain, well, his dad, did his dad play for Newcastle? Is this the point that he found out his dad was, uh, had had a football career? But no, people are talking to his dad because it's the FA Cup final. That's the only reason. But people talk to each other in those days about the game. Yeah, I love that story. It was Derek Thornton, actually, the lad, wasn't it, in question? And and you're right. And uh, Derek Thornton, I love the way he tells the story of the 74 FA Cup final through the eyes of a star-struck 12-year-old. And you're right, Daniel. You know, he was thinking, why is everyone talking to my dad? Is my dad... He, he was thinking, yeah, my dad is special. He's, he's amazing. And he says, why, do you, why is everyone talking to you, Dad? And he says, it's the FA Cup final. It's football. We're Newcastle. This is what we do. So, again, it showed that kind of friendship, that camaraderie. As you say, there was no big reveal, and I wrote it deliberately like that because, yeah, there it was. It's just like it's football. It's the FA Cup final. It's special with Newcastle United. Not just Newcastle; it applies to every other club, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, I think De- Derek's story is fantastic. I love Derek Thornton's story from '74. Every time I'm looking to approach a, a former player of a certain age to interview on this show, I'll do my research and. Sadly, what's happening a lot now is I'm seeing that they're suffering from dementia, you know, which is very much in the news. And the first volume of your FA Cup books opens with 1960 and the story of Barry Stobart, who played in the 60 final for Wolves in their 3-0 win over Blackburn. Tell us how that interview came about and tell us a, a little about Barry Stobart's involvement in the 60 final. Well, I mean, a tragic story, really, Barry, bless him, who's, who's, who's no longer with us. The story just came through researching the 60, the 60 Cup final and speaking to Wolves fans. And it, it turned out that a lot of that side, that, that great Stan Cullis side of the late 50s, early 60s, had been suffering from dementia, and uh, Barry was one of them. And uh, as, I, as I researched the 60 final, I, I started reading this great story about how kind of Barry Stobart had forced his way into the reckoning to, to play on, on, on the day, on that boiling hot day against Blackburn Rovers in '60. And just through contacts, I managed to get a, a number for Barry's wife, Maureen, Mo Stobart, a fantastic uh, woman who had kind of just married Barry around that time. Or, so I think she married just after, but they were, they were courting, to use the old-fashioned uh, expression. Got to know Mo pretty well. She was really suffering. The dementia that uh, Barry had developed was, was a cruel, cruel disease. And uh, I went to, she, she very kindly invited me to their home in Wolverhampton. Barry, I, I don't mean any, any criticism at all. He was a shell of a man. He had nothing. They could not remember anything. He had no recognition of anyone or anything. But his story was such a remarkable one. I watched the, the flickering images of him performing brilliantly in that game against Blackburn and playing really, really well. A young man, I think he was 21 at the time then. The contrast between this man, much older man, sitting in this room in Wolverhampton, not being able to recognise anything or anyone. When I was in the room, I remember that he didn't take his eyes off me. There was something that, who are you? Know, who are you? What are you doing? It was very, 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 very sad. I think oh, there's some very sad stories in these books, actually. But Barry was, was, was one of them. And the dementia, of course, has been, there's been a lot of discussion about dementia um, subsequently in the press about the kind of heading of balls. We've seen the likes of Jeff Astle 
and uh, Jack Charlton indeed, uh, and, and, and many others actually who've suffered from this cruel disease. But Barry, to see the embodiment of this right in front of me and to compare it with this wonderful, fit, healthy young man playing superbly in a match in front of the nation in 1960 was very, very, very sad and very poignant. And I wanted that to come through in the book. There's a fascinating passage in the 60s edition where you write that while British society had changed dramatically, football, despite the 66 World Cup, had been slow to catch up. Why was that? A number of reasons, I think. I think that the um, perhaps the intrinsic uh, conservatism of the, of, of the kind of FA um, was, was, was a problem. I think also hooliganism as well started to rear its head at the end of the the 60s again as we see again there's, I think there's socioeconomic factors to this some sociologists would say more disposable income meant more leisure time and fathers started doing other things on Saturday so young kids started going to games on their own uh, more money meant more travel I think we sort of kind of saw that and I think that held football back in a way as being kind of uh I think it was slow to react. I think that's what I meant, Daniel. I can't remember exactly the passage in question, but I think certainly we saw these socioeconomic factors starting to affect the game, and they crept into the, to the FA Cup final, of course, as well. The books, all three of them, they do capture that gradual rise of hooliganism and also the, the various issues, near crushes in, in stadiums. There are 24 injured in a cup tie at Oxford. Uh, wall collapses in their match with Watford, 24 are injured. And that's just three weeks after the Ibrox Stadium tragedy in, in Scotland in 71. And you interview a number of fans who had their own near misses in games during crowd surges. I think one might be a, a Sunderland fan, Ray. He makes the mistake of standing behind a barrier instead of the front of the barrier and is almost crushed during a surge. I remember going to games in the 80s as a kid. I don't think I ever enjoyed going to a live football game in, in the 80s. It was always, okay, I'm here and I want to see this game, but I don't really want to be here. It was just not as a boy, I, I, I was near, almost frightened every time I went to a game and I did see yeah. nasty stuff in the stadiums. So we can all say football was better when we were kids, but that's not necessarily the truth in terms of the live match experience. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's very easy to get kind of a dewy-eyed and nostalgic about it, about football was better. And there's a whole kind of publishing industry on the back of that, which I, you know, I, I, I recognize that I'm part of, but there were many, many things wrong with the game in that time. And, uh, it kind of people accepted these kind of crushes. You thought with what happened at Ibrox in 71 that uh, things would have improved after that. But no, we still see a series of incidents uh, throughout the 70s, like the one you mentioned at Sunderland. I know there was, a, there was, a, there was an incident at Highbury, I think, in 72. And then, of course, at Wembley itself, there were kind of, there were near misses and crushes, particularly the, 80, the 83 Cup final between Manchester United and and Brighton comes to mind when, and a lot of it was down to the ticket allocation, of course, which meant that the whole ticket allocation wasn't particularly well managed. The same distribution of tickets would be given to clubs, irregardless of the number of fans that um, that followed that club, uh, which meant tickets getting into the wrong hands, people being in the wrong areas at the wrong time, a lack of segregation. And while it wasn't necessarily about fighting, there was overcrowding. And the 83 story, I think, has a particularly um, frightening story about some people being uh, crushed up against a, a, a barrier. And these are not isolated incidents. These are 
regular occurrences. So I think I use in the phrase, in the phrase that we were, as, as a nation and as a sport, we were sleeping, sleepwalking our way towards something of the terrible magnitude of, of Hillsborough in 1989. There were enough warning signs. But hindsight is a great thing. Um, we should have done something. We didn't. But were the signs there? Yes, they were. Hillsborough 89 could easily have been Hillsborough 81. Um, there is a, yes. you can actually find it on YouTube, the Spurs-Wolves semi-final that year, the first game, and you see the, 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 the crowd spilling onto the pitch. And looking at all the various incidents that, that your book touches on through the decades, you've just said we were sleepwalking towards this, but we had plenty of warnings. Why did it take almost 20, 20 years for football and the government and whatever needed to happen for for them all to get together and change change this bring bring this all to an end i mean it, it's it's an incredibly difficult question and one that might almost need a lifetime study on it daniel to get it to get a right right answer um you could say that nobody really knew how to deal with it i think people were scared of government international i mean thatcher margaret thatcher tried to come down hard in football in the 80s, we had the ID scheme. She got her fingers burnt on that. I just don't think anyone really had the answer. It seems criminal now, and probably is literally criminal, that we didn't get to grips with it because we've all got examples. I can remember um, being present at the day Aston Villa won the league championship at Arsenal in 1981. Absolutely packed on the on the North Bank. I can remember being at West Ham for the Dynamo Tbilisi um, game in, in, in uh, earlier that year. Again, crowds outside. And as you say, I don't know. It, it was kind of, I think for young people, it was almost kind of life affirming. It almost kind of made you feel, I think as a boy, as a young boy, yes, scary. But as you kind of got to teenagers, 14, 15, 16, you're thinking this is you know, this is what it's about. You know, I'm, I'm mixing it here with the big boys. You know, it's a crush, but it's great. We're all loving it together. And it was kind of seen as almost fun, if that's not too, uh, too absurd a word to use for something which was, you know, potentially fatal. I don't think anyone knew how to handle it. I don't think the, I don't think the desire was within, the sufficient desire was with either the government all the clubs to do anything about it. And I don't think the fan, the fans were as collective and as uh, organised then as they are now. There have been stronger fan movements. I want it probably the stronger fan movements grew out of the tragedies, but there have been stronger fan movements back then uh, campaigning for better conditions. We might have seen something. It's easy to point the finger. I'm not sure how useful it actually is to do that, but there certainly were lots and lots of signs that a tragedy was 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 a very real possibility and so tragically it's, it's proved every year in the cup finals that you cover ticketing issues are pretty much surfacing all the time and yeah. there's a, a leicester fan they might have been 17 or 18 at the time of the 61 final when they were up against spurs who were poised to do the double and they tell you that they remember seeing Leicester players in pubs near the ground at the time selling cup final tickets to fans at a considerable markup. It tells you a couple of things. Players were closer or more accessible to fans in those days and reaching a cup final presented them with money-making opportunities that they definitely looked to capitalise on. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right to, to pinpoint that as, as, as symbolising the difference between players then and now. And uh, just as a kind of adjunct to that, I mean, most Stobart tells me the time of remembering seeing Wolves players in 1960 
having to go into shops in the town, effectively to cold call shopkeepers looking for sponsorship. I mean, can you imagine the likes of kind of David Beckham and Ryan Giggs, you know, going into shops in the Arndale Centre in Manchester trying to get sponsorship, you know? But yes, absolutely right. The ticketing issues were, and of course, it was always done, it was down to the clubs. The clubs were basically handed their allocation by the FA and it was up to them to distribute them. And there were scores and scores of stories. In fact, I didn't want to overplay it too much because it was apparent it was something that happened every single year where the allocation is deemed unfair, where loyal supporters miss out on games. And it really was, and again, I can't emphasise much, it was such a huge occasion. You would have done anything to have been at that uh, FA Cup final. And, you know, the armchair supporters they start coming out of, out of the woodwork. But the, the, the distribution of tickets, the allocation of t- tickets was consistently a sort of angst right from the word go. And this probably goes back to the, to the, to the 40s, I should imagine. Um, it just wasn't controlled. It wasn't done very well. And it led to all sorts of unfairness, scrambles for tickets. And, of course, one of the things that um, a recurring theme was the touts. Time and time again, we have stories of touts, spibs, call them what you want, you know, getting hold of tickets, buying up. I think there's, uh, there's examples, I think it's from the Tottenham, uh, it's one of the Tottenham finals, touts actually organising, getting children to go in, also about modern day kind of Fagan and his kind of gang, you know, getting kids to, to buy clumps of tickets and then giving them back to the touts. The touts paying people to actually buy loads of tickets and then touts selling them inflated prices. And I kind of like the kind of image of the kind of touts sort of in the 60s you know the kind of the the bloke in a cap on Wembley Way trying to flog tickets at the last minute to uh, to people we still see them now but then it was kind of very much a, it was almost like kind of a folk devil character really but again it's, as you rightly say the ticket allocation was always always an issue and of course the moment of joy when people get those tickets you know is another great uh, human story and people really realize they've actually been lucky and they get their ticket and the lengths they do to preserve that ticket i remember there's a west ham fan that has to keep his ticket in his underpants because that's the only way you feel kind of feel safe you know and um yeah, just 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 great great stories, and those are those little kind. It's the minutiae I wanted to capture, Daniel. Those little stories that wouldn't necessarily be heard, and I wanted them preserved. It's the same as I did with my 1966 World Cup final book. I wanted the the memories of the people who were there to be remembered and cherished for all time, and to really demonstrate, not just now but for generations to come. I hope that the FA Cup was such a huge experience. It's difficult to articulate how big it was. I don't want to, I'm conscious of lapsing into hyperbole and exaggeration here, but I don't think I am because it really, really was that big. A centrepiece, the only show in town, absolutely massive. Now, I would say now the FA Cup final is maybe as big as the League Cup final was in the 60s or 70s. There is an argument you could say it's not even as big as the League Cup final. Um, There is an argument for that. Do you think that doing away with the European Cup Winners' Cup in the late 90s maybe further accelerated the decline of the FA Cup? I do. I think that's that's another reason. I I, I really do. I think, as I said, there's a number of factors. And I certainly think that kind of the the whole kind of, you know, winning the FA Cup, what does it mean? What does it allow you to do? Was it was was a factor. But I think these are these are these are good reasons. But I think the the main reason that people wanted to win the FA Cup was 
was the glamour. And I, I find it particularly disappointing that I do think it was money. And you could say the you could say the European Cup Winners' Cup was, you know, it could be filed under the money issue. I think that it's sad that um, those those extra factors were able to be more important than the glamour and the kudos and the pride and the passion of winning the FA Cup. I think it became that's when it started moving away from the fans and the players to the kind of the clubs and the money makers and the, uh, and, the and, and the big boys. I think that's really sad. I can understand the decline of a competition for other reasons, but I think it's particularly sad when ultimately I believe it is about money. The books are not just all about touts filling up their boots and charging uh, scandalous amounts for cup final tickets. There are a number of fans who speak to you who have some brilliant stories about being approached by random strangers who just give them tickets, which I think is just a beautiful thing. And obviously these guys, these fans have remembered this forever. Yeah. And again, you know, it comes down to the kind of, you know, the disbelief that for something of this occasion, I think there's a couple of examples whereby firms would off big firms in certain areas would often run competitions or have lotteries or draws to you know somehow get hold of a ticket and they say right we'll raffle this one up and and the winner of the raffle would be someone who might not have an interest in football and might not want to go so you know there's examples of handing over to them and the and the just the astonishment i think that the um les les wake from, from the leeds fan from 1970 a young miner who followed leeds all over the country you know fantastic guy les i got to i got to know good friends with a lot of these people by the way les uh, followed leeds everywhere he was he got up every single day at four o'clock to a bit of a cliche go down the pit he's a miner but he lives for Leeds United and he goes all over the place but he can't get a ticket and then he gets a ticket through somehow through the his local, I think the local social club, working men's club, managed to get a ticket and the committee decides to give it to Les because they knew of his story. They knew he was a passionate fan. And just the joy Les gets when he's called in front of the committee in, in you know, on a, on, a, on a certain day in April 1970 and he's told that they've decided to give the ticket to him and the kind of joy that he articulated getting that ticket, you know, is something special. And those kind of stories, you know, really mean a lot to me. And, and I was really grateful that people shared those things with me. And I was privileged with some of the some of the stories that people shared. Just just on the 1970 final, just a, a, a point on that. Um, and you, you you touched on it earlier, but by then football has been around for, you know, 100 years. Chelsea and Leeds go into that final. Neither of them have actually won the FA Cup before. I mean, that's just, I know it's 50 years ago now, and that in itself is a long time, but it's still, these are two big clubs at the time battling it out to win their first FA Cup. That, that's just yeah, remarkable. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And, um, you know, again, really, really enjoyed researching that chapter and got to know loads of Leeds and uh, Chelsea fans through that. And uh, I think in the context, the bigger picture, when the story of the FA Cup is told many centuries from now, if it is, the Leeds-Chelsea final of 70 will be a defining point. I think for, for kind of a, I, I kind of view it as the kind of first modern final, if that doesn't make sense. It's, it's not unusual to describe something that happened 50, 51 years ago as modern. But, um, it, it, you know, it was the one that really kind of encapsulated kind of the drama, you know, Don Revy's uh, do or die, will do anything to win kind of side. Uh, seen as a little bit kind of a little bit cynical with some sort of real hard nuts, not without great skill, by the way, against the kind of flair, again, more cliches, Kings Road kind of swinging 60s London side of Chelsea, you know, and uh, 
you know, and that so uh, that replay at um, at Old Trafford on the 29th of April was just amazing. And I, I remember getting loads of memories from the Chelsea fans gathering at Euston Station to travel up to Manchester on that day. And there's a, a great description about the kind of train journey up through, you know, train hurtling up north. Uh, with all these Chelsea fans on it, and then just kind of the whole the, the whole description. David Webb's game going in, goal going in at the end, and the journey back for the Chelsea fans, and the disappointment faced by kind of Les Wake and his like the Leeds fans. Just a great great story and a great match on the on the pitch as well. And of course, I go into I actually go into great detail about the matches actually on the pitch because I you know researched every single FA Cup final and rewatched them all and. I loved all the great pieces of commentary from the likes of David Coleman and Brian Moore and John Motson and you know, so include kind of snatches of that kind of conversation throughout because it was all part of it for me, those kind of great great, you know, and the Ann Smith must score from that was actually Peter Jones on the radio, but uh, you know, David Coleman, the one nil after Stokes scores uh, against uh, Manchester United. Yeah, just just all kind of great for me, all those kind of bits and pieces. A favourite story for me, one that I'd never heard, the 69 final, uh, Fisty Cuffs between the BBC and ITV TV Cup final. Uh, oh, cruise, I love that. Uh, yeah, which leads to that. Jimmy Hill wading in. Um, fill us in on that. Yeah, that was great. I mean, as, as, you know, as I think we said earlier in the conversation, Daniel, this kind of television coverage got more increasingly um, high profile in the 60s. And of course, that led to great um, competition between um, ITV and BBC One. Now, of course, in 68, ITV had uh, launched uh, the big match or, uh, and uh, the kind of regional televised programme. So ITV were really kind of the new kids in town, really, when it came to football coverage, and they were trying to make their mark. Now, the big post-match interview had become a huge deal on um, uh, on Cup final day, and everyone wanted to be the first one to get on the pitch interview. So... Uh, BBC uh, had, they claim, a uh, an exclusive deal with Manchester City and Leicester to, if ever they won, they'd get the first interview. But um, ITV apparently were having none of this. And there was a suggestion that ITV officials had managed to get hold of some light blue shirts to yes. some tracksuit tops to, to blend in with the City officials. So once Man City had won the game and it was all kind of, they'd come down with the with the trophy. These uh, these 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 light blue shirted officials were able to were on the scene to get the first interview, and apparently there was a there was, a, it was an unedifying punch up <laughs> uh, between um, a BBC and ITV as the BBC uh, said we've got this interview. No, ITV said no, we've got it, and it was all ended up in fisticuffs. And uh, I think Jimmy Hill, his quote was, "The BBC physically tried to um, prevent us from trans- from broadcasting a program." So it was all, yes, it all kind of kicked off between BBC and ITV. And again, this was a factor. This kind of set the scene for the uh, the 70s when the BBC and ITV were trying to outdo each other on kind of final, how can I say, different kind of themes. You know, BBC had the... Uh, uh, had the had the mastermind or the it's a knockout. I think it was ITV that actually kind of launched the the the, uh, the camel on the coach. It was that was the kind of time honoured thing as the uh, they, they'd be in the hotel, then ITV would have a camera going with the teams on the coach. So all these kind of innovations they tried to win, kind of the viewing figures, you know. But I think back then it was kind of something you watched on the BBC. Because it was seen almost, as I say, Daniel, it was seen as almost like a state occasion, the FA Cup final. 
you know, with the Queen's presence or royalty being there and the bands, the marching bands and the singing of Abide With Me, it was seen as a state occasion, which, of course, tends to equate more with the BBC than the ITV. But the ITV were the, the disruptors of those days, wanting to kind of piece of the cake. But again, just another wonderful subplot that the FA Cup was able to uh, conjure up. Still to come. As you rightly pointed out, the kind of dog track, the electronic scoreboard, you know, all these things that were kind of the trappings of our national stadium that was special. It wasn't great. The facilities were, were probably inadequate, but we loved it. We loved its symbolism. We loved its romance. We cherished everything about it, from the from the dog track going round round the, the side to just the shape of the ground. I say the scoreboard, everything about it was a special, special place. For the seventies, the competitions peak. I, I think so. Uh, I'm wary of. I'm. I think my age is significant because I was kind of. I was. I was kind of a boy in the seventies, so I was kind of like I was the kind of awestruck, starstruck, you know, wide-eyed boy watching the television from the moment the transmission started till till the end. But I do think it was. I do think it was, and I think we saw a kind of. Uh, I think the stories emanating from the seventies, and every single year had a great story. Every single year, if it were not in the final, then in the rounds leading up to it, you know, you could tell me any, you know, we could all think of stories from from any year in the 70s. I think it was the de- the peak of it. And I think the 73 FA Cup final remains possibly, in terms of a story, the greatest cup final ever in terms of what happened with Sunderland, Bob Stokoe Sunderland beating Revy's Leeds. It was just such a... A shock, the manner of that win. And don't forget, Sunderland had beaten Arsenal in the semi-final as well. You know, the highly rated Arsenal, beat them at Hillsborough. And then, of course, we had, you know, the Southampton um, beating uh, Man United in 76. And all these all these great games, you had the kind of, the, the, they call it the five-minute final, the decade. The decade is bookended by, of course, the great Chelsea and Leeds of 70 and the um, Arsenal and Manchester United final of um, 79, which... Although it wasn't uh, uh, the best game, had the most extraordinary ending, and Arsenal winning three two with that goal by Alan Sunderland. I mean, and it was again, it just encapsulated an amazing decade. Ipswich Town winning the cup in seventy eight. Bobby Robson, you know, it was making it was making star names of managers as well, like Bob Stokoe and his famous run of joy at the end of um, seventy three to embrace Jim Montgomery, the kind of hero of the, of that game. Laurie McMenemy, the former guardsman, you know, winning the cup in 76 with Southampton, you know, he became a celebrity. Bobby Moore, 75, playing for Fulham against West Ham. Everything had a great story, a great subplot. And it was just kind of, it was fantastic. And, and we'd be talking about it in the days leading up to the, uh, to the cup final. I remember at my school in, um, in, in Sig Cup in Kent. In the weeks leading up to it, all we were talking about was the FA Cup final. We'd have matches being the two sides. We, we'd divide ourselves into camps about who wanted to win. It was just fantastic. I mean, it was just, you couldn't make it up. It was absolutely brilliant. The 70s, although you did have big clubs winning it in the 70s, there was a greater spread of winners. And um, we yes. had teams like Forrest and Derby, who between them won three titles in the 70s, didn't win the FA Cup that decade. Now, the 80s, while there were teams making their first appearances, you mentioned that in your book, that 
we had teams like QPR, Brighton, Watford, Coventry, Wimbledon, all got to the final in the 80s. But aside maybe, well, not aside from, I mean, West Ham, Coventry, Wimbledon, they all won it in the 80s. But the big clubs at that point did start to dominate the FA Cup. And this is in the days before the Super Squad. So what might have been happening there? Because I think United won it twice in that decade. Liverpool won it twice. Everton won it. Um, Spurs won it twice. So they're starting to impose themselves on the competition. We do, but I, I, you, you, you're absolutely right, Daniel, but I don't think it was an overbearing dominance. Uh, and you're right that Liverpool... And I think a lot of it was about... I think the double became... Because the double had become very elusive, that became a really important thing. Obviously, Arsenal won the double in 71, and then suddenly this became a bit of a holy grail. I think the, 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 the desire to win the double became perhaps, no pun intended, teams redoubled their efforts to, yes. to, 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 to win that. The fact the teams you mentioned were getting there it still shows that it was a it was a democratic competition. I think it's ironically, I think after the nineties, when apparently teams the bigger teams started to show less interest. But I also also in the two thousands, I think and people may well dispute this. It might be a, might be an age thing. There might be kids younger than me saying, "No, it's fantastic. I love the and there were some great finals." Let's not forget the kind of the you know Liverpool. Uh, Owen's goals at uh, Cardiff and the, and the and the Liverpool West Ham final, but generally speaking, there's a whole wodge of finals after about kind of ninety six, ninety seven. When to me they just merge into one, and we got we got a, a mixture of Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, Man United winning them. I can't really, I struggle to really know, and I think that started to. That is when, and a series of games that frankly weren't particularly good. So I think the gloss was starting to come off the uh, off the front. I do think, I think you're right, actually, it probably did start in the 80s. I think you're probably right, actually, Daniel. I think it was starting to diminish. I think, and that goes back to your question, which I think is a very good one about was the 70s the peak. For me personally, it was. And I think that, that when you look at the bigger picture, I think it might be for everyone as well. Because I think that's when it stopped becoming the only show in town, I think, the FA Cup, you know. and uh... I know that in 1990, the semi-finals were televised live for the first time. Well, actually, that's wrong. I think the the abandoned Hillsborough semi-final, that was shown live when Forrest and Liverpool eventually met again. But the following year, the FA Cup semi-finals, both of them were shown live. And they were both brilliant games. Oldham United was an even better game than Liverpool Palace. But maybe that... I don't know. I mean, the semi-finals yes. used to both be played on Saturday. Maybe yes. that was a bit of a change. But for me, the really, really big one, people talk about United in 2000 not defending it. For me, the FA Cup had been dead for almost a decade by then. 91 playing the Arsenal-Spurs game at Wembley, that that really killed it for me because there was such a mystique about Wembley. And that moment, with that one decision for me, that mystique was gone. Yeah, Bang on, absolutely right. Just yet another kind of uh, nail in the coffin, I think, to the kind of the the, the, the glamour, the showpiece. The, 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 you're absolutely right. The thing about the FA Cup final in the sixties and seventies and before that was the was the one-off nature of it. Was the fact it was held at Wembley, it was played at three o'clock on a Saturday, it was broadcast live. The Queen was there, as you say. The semi-finals were held at Hillsborough or Main Road or um, or Villa Park, and the moment that's that changed 
it started to rub some of the gloss about the kind of one-off nature of the FA Cup. And you're absolutely right. The fact the semi-final then started to become broadcast live, games played at uh, Wembley. Great games, as you say, all, many of them. But again, it's starting to shift the axis to sort of remove some of that exclusivity of the one-off showpiece occasion. And gradually, it was all being chipped away, slowly but surely. The glamour, kudos the amazing event that was the English, Welsh, call it what you want, FA Cup final, it was starting to diminish. And it was irretrievable, I think. And we lost something very, very special there. Some will say it was inevitable with the money going into the Premier League, that that was always going to... It's extremely complex reasons why the FA Cup lost its glamour, but I think all the things we've been discussing certainly are important contributory factors to it. 87 Coventry Spurs, a game that uh, the former Coventry manager and chairman Jimmy Hill remarks was something of a throwback, and it was an absolutely brilliant final. And you had a particular obsession as a kid with Coventry City, so this would have been a big final for you. Tell us about you and Coventry City. Well, look, let's, um, let's, let's be clear. I'm a Charlton Athletic fan. I come from a, I'm a third generation Charlton Athletic fan. My, my granddad was Charlton, my dad was Charlton, I'm Charlton. But in the, in the 70s, when I was uh, kind of young and impressionable, first of all, I was drawn towards Arsenal, kind of being a bit of a kid. So, you know, they were the, they were the, the big kind of glamour side in for, for London and Kent. And, but then I kind of got back into But when I was about nine, I was obsessed with football kids. So I loved all the unusual kits. I loved the, uh, you know, I was not so interested in the reds and blues and, and, and that kind of thing. But I always, I always gravitated towards the kind of West Ham's and Burnley's and Aston Villa's, the Clarets or the Norwich, the yellow, the tangerines of Blackpool. You know, these were the kits that fascinated. And of course, Coventry had always played in, in sky blue. And then in 70, of course, on the back of the England team, I think in the autumn of 74, getting this great new Admiral kit, um, which was just like, I can't, again, I can't describe how exciting that was for us as kind of eight-year-olds. This, this New England kit was huge. And then on the back of that, um, shortly after, Coventry City brought out this fantastic uh, blue kit uh, with the kind of the, uh, the kind of downward stripes with sort of uh, uh, this coming out from the sides, uh, with sort of white and black. And we went mad for it at school. We thought, have you seen that Coventry City kit? We we had nothing to do really to do with Coventry up to that point. But we went mad for Coventry. So Coventry became a bit of a favourite in the kind of mid-70s. This was the era of kind of Ian Wallace, Mick Ferguson, Jim Blythe in goal, you know, these kind of players. And uh, so I loved Coventry. And uh, I also loved the name. I don't know why I said Coventry. I just liked it for some reason. It's Coventry. I don't know why I liked it. So um, I loved this kit. And uh, so, yeah, I was in a bit of a soft spot for, for Kov. And then, of course, um, the day of that final was actually was the, was the Monday before I did my finals at university. Um, I didn't get any work done at all. And I was living with the Coventry fans. I remember watching the 87 um, FA Cup final, a tiny black and white portable television in a, in a, student, in a student hovel in, um, in, Car- <laughs> in Cardiff and just seeing this great game unfolding because we'd watched Coventry's progress to the final. And of course, um, again, one expected to win, but again, more you know, Curtis and Sillett, the uh, the bosses of uh, Coventry, became uh, very high profile and well known, and just this great game unfolded. And um, of course, that diving header by Keith Houchen, uh, you know, kind of 
kind of yeah, absolutely brilliant goal, epitomising the uh, again the glamour of the cup. And what a great final that was! You know, really terrific, ebbed and flowed. It's what a what a final should be, really. But let's let's not get too. Uh, there were some disappointing finals. There have been some disappointing finals in the time. I mean, everyone talks about the '68 Cup final with uh, West Brom and, and um, Everton being a, being a shocker, but there was been some bad finals. The Tottenham QPR game as a neutral, I didn't think it was a particularly good match um, either game. Um, Everton Watford, I didn't think it was a particularly good game. Actually. Yeah, I remember that one. I remember being really disappointed by Everton Watford, thinking, "But how could it have been a bad game? This is the FA Cup final. Yeah. <laughs> I've been lucky up until that point." But that's the thing. Even if you, even if your team hadn't made the final, I don't know about you, but you, you choose your team for the day. Oh, hundred percent. And you'd get butterflies before the game. You know, you didn't yeah, was, really was, involve uh, yourself in the game. Yeah, and it was usually the underdog for me. You know, yeah. I always wanted, wanted the underdog to win. Nothing, there's nothing unusual about that. Of course, the 84 final, famous for Elton John, watching his beloved Watford and sort of crying in the stands, you know, when I abide, abide With Me was played. But again, he actually epitomised the sort of the joy of the fan. Elton John, he's a, you know, not, he's, a, he's a great Watford fan and he was enjoying his moment at Wembley. And uh, But that him crying uh, when Abide With Me was played suddenly, you know, to me, spoke volumes for the experience of a fan. But no, going back to 87, that was just a great, a great moment as you say uh, my love affair with the Coventry City kit of course this was the precursor to the dreadful chocolate brown away kit that they uh, ill-advisedly had later on and uh, but um, yeah Coventry definitely a bit of a bit of a favour for mine purely on the back of a kit which I loved. The FA Cup was also it used to be an important stage in post in a team's development. And you could say the UEFA Cup was the same for, for European teams that were emerging. They'd go into the UEFA Cup, which was usually far stronger than the European Cup. And these teams would come to your attention. And within a couple of years, they'd be in the European Cup. The FA Cup, we can look at, say, teams like Ipswich in 78, who were getting stronger, but league-wise had had a bad year that year. But within a couple of years, they're, they're challenging for the title. They win the UEFA Cup. Spurs in 81 and 82. The FA Cup's that first win for that Birkinshaw team, which was a fine team. Although it didn't quite happen for Ron Atkinson's United, they were still expected to go on and do something after 83. Everton, of course, did, became the best team in Europe on the back of 84. So the FA Cup, it did something for a club. Not, you know, A lot of clubs use that as a springboard to become outstanding teams. Yeah, that's 100% right. And uh, let's, let's face it, it was difficult to win the FA Cup. You had to fight your way through because, because every club wanted to win it. Every club really went for it. So you had to, you had to be a good side to win the FA Cup. You had to endure some tough fixtures away. So you're right, it was a it was an important staging post. It wasn't a given that you would win the FA Cup. The semi-final, and again, you had to perform on the day to win the FA Cup, you know. And uh, as you say, yeah, it, I think it was an important staging post. And, but also we saw, not just into Europe, but we saw teams like Sunderland, you know, it was kind of revitalised. Sunderland as a club were revitalised on the back of the, the 73 win. Southampton as, as well, you know, became a, a pretty good side, late 70s, early 80s. You know, they had been a good side previously, but, you know, that that cup win in 76 proved the springboard for promotion, as it did for Sunderland. If maybe not that season, but a couple of seasons later, these sides won promotion. And I think it gave the club a whole as a boost. But you're right to name the likes of kind of Ipswich and Everton, who went on to kind of European Cup glory, because they'd done it on the big stage. They said, right, you can win at Wembley, you can win anywhere. And um, I think it was. The fact we're talking about this now, um, Daniel, we're remembering all these games, is just symptomatic of how big it was and it was important for all of us 
for football fans especially, but it was just important for the nation. And, uh, you know, as I said in my book, my club, Charlton Athletic, like won the FA Cup in 1947, but I haven't got anywhere near the FA Cup final. I haven't got anywhere near the semi-final. You know, we've got to a couple of sixth round ties, performed abysmally. But um, so I think there was a, there was an element, it was, it was vicarious for me to speak to these fans that had been there. In a way, I guess I was kind of channeling my own desire to go to the FA Cup final. Now, if Charlton went, got to the FA Cup final, I mean, you know, I'm going to be there. But is it going to be special now? Again, of course, the other thing, I've had two fantastic playoff finals with Charlton at Wembley. And to me, the playoff final, particularly the, the championship or the, the championship final, is probably the, as close as you'll get to the, the old-fashioned FA Cup final. I remember when we beat Sunderland in 1998 in a game that is still talked about. To me, it was it was huge, and that game is still talked about. And I think the, the the championship playoff and other playoff finals are as big now as the FA Cup was in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. I found it fascinating when some of the people you interviewed would tell you about their experience, that their recollection of first sighting the old Wembley, and it tallied with my own recollections because. It was a shabby ground once you were in there. The views weren't great. But when you came out of the underground station and you start walking down Wembley Way and you see those towers, it's just something you never forget as a kid. And also, the one thing I miss about the old Wembley, and you'll remember this, when, say, we were kids, English grounds, you know, the, the four corners of English grounds, aesthetically, they weren't maybe held to be as uh, architecturally as impressive as, say, some of the European bowls. And, you know, you'd see European Cup finals with the athletics tracks and you'd think, wow, what a ground. But they didn't really lend themselves to the television age. And now in the television age, it's all about the squared off grounds, the corners and the atmosphere that those grounds generate. But I do think we miss a ground that is distinctive in the way that Wembley was when the teams would walk out of the cup final and had to cross the dog track. For me, I, I, I talking about it now, I can still visualize that we've lost that. We don't have that, that moment. So Wembley looks almost like any other ground. If you're not looking at the arch, it could be any ground. Yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it was all about symbolism, wasn't it? You mentioned the twin towers and the twin towers became a metaphor for Wembley, you know, you know, you could say you're dreaming of the Twin Towers and everyone knew what they meant. It was a, it was, it was a, a byword for Wembley Stadium, wasn't it? And, and yes, you're right. Wembley was, let's face it, it wasn't a great, you know, built, built in, it was a kind of pre-art deco built in 1923. Yeah, the Twin Towers were kind of hollow edifices, really, you know, but it was the symbolism, you know, the flags flying above it. And it was that kind of circular shape, wasn't it? And I took the after the roof was put on in... Um, 1963 I think it was really kind of to take shape as a um, as a great ground but it was all about symbolism you just say Wembley it just means to me it just means FA Cup and the you know the song Wembley Wembley you know it's just it's just a one word no other place I don't think any other place in football has it you know Wembley you say Wembley see the Twin Towers that walk up uh, Wembley way very very special as you rightly point about the kind of dog track the electronic scoreboard you know all these things that were kind of the trappings of our national stadium that was special it wasn't great the facilities were were probably inadequate but we loved it we loved its symbolism we loved its romance 
we cherished everything about it from the from the dog track going around around the, the side to just the shape of the ground i say the scoreboard everything about it was a special special place they tried to do it with the archers you know the big arch now on wembley i can see why they've done that it is distinctive but for me the twin towers they're irreplaceable the 75 final, this is a really poignant interview with a West Ham fan from that game, Peter Hammersley. Do you want to pick up the story for us? Because this this is probably the story, I think, the standout story for me from the three books of all the fans that you spoke to. This is the one that will, will stay with me. And I think it's the first time this guy said he was able to actually talk about his loss. Yeah, a very, very special um, story, very, very sad. And I felt, you know, again, I use that word privilege. I was privileged that Peter chose to to speak about this moment um, with me. Peter was a West Ham fan. I, um, I, I, I traced through the, I think, I think it was the Perth, uh, the West in Western Australia, so the Perth West Ham Supporters Club. And he responded to uh, me reaching out to them. And I thought, OK, that's great. You know, here's Peter. You know, I'm going to hear his, I was expecting to hear Peter's stories, you know, the lad from East Ham, which is just around the corner from Upton Park. I thought, oh, this would be interesting, you know. But then this astonishing tale of bravery and, and tragedy emerged, whereby Peter's younger brother, Derek, Peter shares the decline in Derek's health, his, his battle against cancer, against the backdrop of West Ham's um, journey to the 75 FA Cup final and Derek's declining health and you know how uh, Derek was determined to 16 Derek was by the way Derek's determination to be at the final and um, very special replay um, semi-final against uh, Ipswich Town played at Stamford Bridge Peter describing Derek's efforts to kind of get there despite being in very very poor health and uh, unable to, to, to really breathe and, and just the, the kind of love that Peter showed for um, his younger brother wanting to do the best for him and the, the sadness that, that, that his declining health meant put us put against West Ham's glorious journey to the FA Cup. And then, of course, tragically, um, Derek lost his life um, between the semi-final and the final. Really just the way kind of Derek, what was going through Derek's head, uh, sorry, Peter's head, the tragedy of losing a, a much-loved younger brother juxtaposed with his beloved football club being in the um, cup final. And then, of course, the great intervention by Mr Brooking himself, which is another element to that. So we talked about ticket allocation. So, so Peter had, had, you know, lost his, his, his brother in, in tragic circumstances. And, and then again, yet another mix-up mess, call it what you like, with kind of tickets meant that Peter, who'd followed West Ham through thick and thin all over the country, home and away, hadn't got a ticket. So not only had he lost his brother, he couldn't get a ticket. And then kind of word got round on the grapevine of this uh, Peter's plight. And um, Trevor Brooking got to hear about this, intervened and apparently thought there's no way this gentleman is going to miss this fine. I'm going to make sure of this. So the great man that is Trevor Brooking, I think he's a great man actually, called on Peter's family and said, look, I, know, I understand what's happened to you. And with my compliments, I'd like to give you a ticket for the game. Peter asked for, it to, for Trevor Brooking to sign the ticket on the back, which he did. So he had, and, 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 and uh, Peter's description of the, um, I, I'm just, I'm struggling to remember here, but, but basically he didn't, he had to swap the ticket, didn't he? Um, yeah. So it's him and his friend could be together in the same part of the ground. So he had to give the ticket away to another West Ham fan who swapped it for another part of the ground. But he, uh, 
the fan promised to return it to Peter and, and, and they swapped addresses and he did. And Peter to this day just it was so, so delighted to get that ticket back. And, you know, he, you know, Trevor Brooking in his eyes is a god. But the way Peter tells the story of that final and how he remembered his brother during that game, who bear in mind he'd lost just over a week earlier before the game against Fulham, um, is a is a tremendously powerful story which as I say I don't want to overuse the word I was privileged to be able to 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 carry that and that uh, Peter shared that story with me and as you rightly identified of all the stories I researched and wrote this is the most powerful and also a song that was out at that time loving you yeah. with a remarkable vocal by Minnie Ripperton and sadly yeah. she she was to lose her life early within four years so it just adds to the poignancy and yeah um, Peter tells you that he always associates that song with his brother yeah, mini mini Ripperton and uh, loving you, which was which was number two in the charts at the time. And again, um, you know, that's something for me. The connection between football and pop music and popular culture and memories has always been very strong. So it was interesting that Peter. That's something that I do, and I think we all do it, don't we? Have songs and moments in time that remind us of certain moments. But that song by Mini Ripperton, a particularly sad song, a particularly kind of poignant ballad. And then, of course, Minnie herself losing her life to cancer. I think in 1979, as you say, it, it really is a powerful tale, isn't it? Really, and still saddens me really when I think of it. And um, but testimony to 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 Peter for telling his story so eloquently and bravely about the loss of his brother, who he's who he's never forgotten. And there was a lovely story about the uh, the words on the um, the gravestone as well. Yeah, yeah, um, which is another lovely touching element had inscribed these words on 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 the gravestone about his brother relating to the uh, to the to the, the cup final win against West Ham so very very powerful stuff before we wrap up with the the the, the final book and how you decided to conclude it you mentioned the 5 minute final earlier on and I think we mentioned the 64 final too. There's an Arsenal fan who was there at 69, uh, sorry, in 79, Ken Smith, who recalls the atmosphere after the game. And let's bear in mind that Arsenal had won, but he tells you there were thousands of supporters from both clubs walking across the bridge to the station. There was no chanting, both sets of fans, winners and losers, emotionally drained by the game. The West Ham fan from 64, Terry Roper, tells you the same thing about the 64 final, even though his team had won. So, I mean, the fans really lived this game. Yeah, I, and, you know, I mentioned the 1998 playoff uh, final between uh, Charlton and Sunderland, and it's my own example of this because I complete, I, I didn't quite understand what that... Well I, well, I, well, I do understand that we're saying because when I left that highly charged emotional game in 98 we were speechless we were emotionally drained i just said to my mates drink this in lads because it's not going to get any better than this in terms of an experience and it hasn't and i don't think it will so i think what happened you are just emotionally drained after an experience like that you're physically and mentally shattered Um, not just the exertions of kind of celebrating a goal but just you've been through the emotional ringer and that 79 final was the epitome of that it was the kind of roller coaster and you do you use the phrase correctly you live it you breathe it you're so immersed in the experience and the events in front of you this is football generally by the way but particularly the FA Cup final the stakes are that high at this the ground we're talking about we talked about the special Wembley and all that goes with it and you hear that story quite frequently, actually. Like, we just didn't know what to say afterwards. We were just shattered. We were too tired to celebrate. 
you know, you almost you, you convene in the pub and you have a few beers or whatever's your tipple, and you just think, you just uh, we don't know how we can follow that. We don't know how we can articulate that, and that that is that is a sentiment that's quite frequent, I think, after big games. The final volume, the eighties, ends in a rather moving fashion. I was bracing myself for having to read um, another chapter on Hillsborough, you know, something that we all know about, and I thought this is going to be a it's going to be a tough read. And I'm reading the 88 final and I'm looking at how few pages are left at the end of that book. And I'm thinking, well, there's still another final left. You chose to end the book with just a page on the 89 final and listing the names of those lost. And it really does have pretty much the similar impact. It was as if I was reading about Hillsborough again. It was quite stark to see those names there. And we kind of been building up to this almost with your books because you've been citing near misses and people had their own stories that they'd given you about their own experiences at stadiums and crutches. Were you always minded to end the book in such a way or was this something as you progressed through the book that it just felt right to you? Uh, the latter, Daniel, I think. I, I, I kind of grappled how to handle the, that, um, the 1989 final editorially as I'd been writing the 80s final, I'd been thinking, I can't do justice to the... The football would become irrelevant. I couldn't speak. It was no point me revisiting earlier rounds or the pre hillsborough day. I just couldn't do it justice. And I didn't want to also... I felt it completely wrong to add any more grief to, a, a particular, you know, to, to, to what happened. So I thought, what I'm going to do... I'm just going to write a couple of parts of introduction and I'm just going to devote this chapter to those who died on the 15th of April, 1989, which is what I did. So I just listed their names and I thought that was the most responsible and respectful way of handling something. I didn't feel I, didn't feel I had the skill and the power as a writer to do justice. And that's very, a very honest appraisal of my own ability, but I didn't feel I had the power. And I didn't think I could add anything useful to it. I thought the, the best thing I could do, the best way I could pay tribute to those fans and to football fans everywhere was just to list the names of those who died. And there's a, there's a line from a Liverpool fan in the previous chapter, Ron Schofield, who tells you if there was one result he could have changed, it would have been Liverpool's win over Brentford in the 89 FA Cup quarterfinals. And I read that and I thought, wow, you know, that's quite a, an arresting line. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Ron was, uh, you know, yeah, a fan I've got to know very well. Um, I think this is something I should, I should imagine I've got to know some incredibly great, excellent people through the course of this book. Some of who have become have become close friends. But the '89 was the was obviously the the editorially the most challenging about how I was going to handle it. I hope I just I've done justice to those to those football fans who lost their lives that day by doing that because they deserve better. And of course, the FA Cup was was become the unwitting agent of their of their demise, and that's a, that's a terrible thing. Lastly, looking back at the three books, and they are quite an accomplishment. What, if anything, surprised you about writing them? I think the the, the wellspring of nostalgic emotion that it untapped. I think um, people had been harboring these memories for decades, fifty years in some cases but that it all spilled out. And I, as I suspected it would, 
people wanted to talk people were delighted to talk people thought yeah it was special day it really was yes whether you were a Blackburn Rovers fan in 1960 or a Leeds fan in 65 or whatever uh, an Everton fan in 68 people wanted to talk people remembered their experiences it brought back some very very happy memories it brought back some very very sad memories it was my relief that, in a way, my hunch had been a correct one, that there was a whole swathe of untapped stories waiting to be told around the FA Cup. That was really kind of affirming that people wanted to do that. And I hope I've, I've collected quite a, a, a decent collection of stories, which I view, again, as social history, because that's, um, that's what these things are. Uh, and I think the FA Cup is, deserves its rightful place in our history, not just in football, but in wider society. I've appreciated your time today, Matt. There are tons and tons of stories from fans and former players in the books that we've not touched on here that uh, listeners may enjoy reading. Um, please tell listeners where they can find your work. And I mean, you've written quite a few books. Tell us what you may be working on, if you can, or what you've just finished that listeners might be interested in. Well, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm a Charlton fan. I think most Charlton fans know about my, my miscellany and on this day. But then my, it's the trilogy of FA Cup books, which we've just been talking about, 1960s, 1970s and 1980s. And then I took a very similar approach to the 1966 World Cup final in a book called 66 on 66, which was I traced some, I actually traced about 300 people around the world who were at the World Cup final in 66. And I told, and I got their stories, but I, I, I mould them into a book called 66 on 66. So again, with all due respect to the likes of Bobby Charlton and Jeff Hurst, I'd heard all those memories. I didn't want to know those memories. I wanted to know the memories of the, the man who worked, who was in the band, playing in the band that day. I wanted to know about the photographers, the journalists, the fans, the caterers. And I collected all those stories together and working with a photographer called Stuart Thomas, took world-class portrait photographs of them. And uh, that's called 66 on 66. I've just worked with the former Charlton goalkeeper, Graham Tutt, whose career was cut short by horrific injury, televised on Match of the Day. It happened at Roker Park in February 76. Graham nearly lost his life in that, uh, in that uh, moment. And he's had a fascinating life um, living in apartheid-dominated South Africa and uh, in America. So I've worked with him on his uh, story. And what we haven't mentioned, of course, is that next year is the 150th anniversary of the FA Cup. Okay. It started in, in 1872. So maybe watch this space. I might uh, have something up my sleeve there, uh, Daniel. Thank you to Matt Eastley. A link to all three volumes of When the FA Cup Really Mattered, published by Pitch Publishing, will be posted in the show notes. And Pitch are at pitchpublishing.co.uk. Thanks to Jane at Pitch for helping to set this interview up. When Shorts Were Short will be back in a few weeks. I haven't stopped working on it since it went on a break back in March. The idea back then was to pause the show so I could go off and record the number of new interviews I felt the show needed in order to get back to where it needs to be, where it was meant to be before various circumstances my end got in the way of that. Details of that can be found in episode 12. No need to repeat it on here. The good news is that almost 20 new interviews have been completed. More are lined up as well. 
more hard work ahead in terms of editing them. And uh, once I've started, the podcast will return certainly by Euro 2020. You know, I don't know why they don't just call it Euro 2021. Very confusing, though, of course, football has form on that front. The Champions League hasn't just been exclusive to champions since 1997 now. So anyway, I'm back soon. There's going to be a new setup which will allow listeners to support the show and those that do will get new episodes early and bonus content too. It's the only way forward for this show and most indie shows really with all the work these shows entail. They need to be an ongoing concern so it makes sense to to take it in this direction and that was always the plan. And I know it's boring to hear but I can't overstate how important it is for this to be rated and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. Both are needed. One without the other just doesn't work. Those ratings and reviews help the show gain a greater visibility in the Apple Podcast store. That in turn increases the audience. Please do subscribe too and share it on social media, tweeting about it, RT in it. It's all a massive help and shows me there are listeners out there that care about this show. Each individual episode takes the best part of a week in post-production, that is, never mind pre-production. And if you can do that for all the little podcasts you might listen to, unless you're happy with all that mainstream celebrity-fronted drivel now established in the podcast world, Rating and reviewing small original shows helps indie podcasters reach a bigger audience. Thanks for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me at Shorts Were Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work is at DanielRuizTizen.com. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. I'll be back soon. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs>